Chapter Thirty One of A Man of Honor by George Carey Eggleston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirty One. Mr. William Barksdale explains. Precisely what Doctor Harrison's emotions were when he found himself in the sheriff's hands, nobody is likely ever to know, as that gentleman was always of taciturn mood in matters closely concerning himself and on the present occasion was literally dumb with foggy the case was different he was always a prudent man he was not given to the taking of unnecessary risks for the sake of abstract principles he made no pretensions to the possession of heroic fortitude under affliction and he had no special reputation for high-toned honor to lose the clutch of the law was to him an uncomfortable one, and he was prepared to escape it by any route which might happen to be open to him. This disposition upon his part was an important factor in the problem which Billy had set out to solve. He knew Foggy was a moral coward, and upon his cowardice he depended, in part, for the success of his undertaking. As soon as court adjourned, the commonwealth's attorney requested the members of the grand jury to make themselves as comfortable as might be while he should be engaged in the preparation of formal indictments against the two prisoners going then to his office he closeted himself with billy barksdale who had preceded him thither by his request you'll help me with this prosecution won't you billy he asked with as good a will as I ever carried to a fish fry, said Billy. Well, then, said the attorney, tell me just how the thing stands. I confess I'm all in a jumble about it. Begin at the beginning and tell the whole story. Then we'll know where we stand and how to proceed. Accordingly, Billy recounted the history of the protested draft, the promise to pay, its non-fulfillment, and the trouble which ensued. He then continued, My suspicions as to the real facts of the case were aroused by accident. Major Pagebrook consulted me a few days ago about a note signed by Ewing Pagebrook drawn in favor of Charlie Harrison, which, Harrison said, had been given him when he advanced money to Ewing with which to pay a gambling debt to Foggy. That note was evidently dated ahead, as it bore date of November the 19th, one day after Ewing attained his majority, when, in fact, the boy was taken ill on the morning of his 21st birthday and never left his bed afterwards. This confirmed me in the belief that Foggy and Harrison were confederates in their gambling operations. They fleeced the boy and then had him borrow the money with which to pay from Harrison and give a note for it, so as to make the consideration good. And they took pains to have him dated ahead, so as to get rid of the minority trouble. This by itself would have amounted to nothing, but in looking over Ewing's papers, I found a letter there from Bob Pagebrook which I happened accidentally to know was received during Ewing's illness. Here it is. I'll read it. 
my dear ewing i cannot tell you how grieved i am at the news your letter brings me i can ill afford to lose the three hundred dollars which i entrusted to you to hand to your father and even if you do make it good when you come of age as you so solemnly promise me you will i am meanwhile placed in a very awkward position with regard to it i promised your father to pay him that money by a certain day and was greatly pleased as you know when upon arriving at the courthouse on my way north i found the remittance awaiting me there as it enabled me to make the payment in advance of the time agreed upon when i in my haste to catch the train gave you the check to give to your father i dismissed the subject from my mind and set about the work of repairing my fortunes with a light heart little thinking that matters would turn out as they have but while i am sorely annoyed by the fact that this may place me in an awkward position i am willing to trust my reputation in your hands remember that you are now bound in honor not merely to pay this money as soon as you shall attain your majority but also to protect me from undeserved disgrace by frankly stating the facts of the case to your father in the event of his entertaining doubts of my integrity this much you are in honor bound to do in any case and you have also given me your word that you will do it if your father shall seem disposed to think me not unduly dilatory in the matter of payment you need tell him nothing you may spare yourself that mortification send me the money and i will remit it to him merely saying that unavoidable circumstances which i am not at liberty to explain have prevented the earlier payment which i intended to make but in agreeing to do this ewing i am moved solely by my desire to shield you from disgrace and consequent ruin when i gave you that money for your father it was a sacred trust and in converting it to other uses you not only wronged me but you made yourself guilty of something very like a crime pardon me if i speak plainly for i am speaking only for your good and i speak only to you i want you to understand how terribly wrong and altogether dishonorable your act was so that you may never be guilty of another such i am not disposed to reproach you but i do want to warn you you are the son of a gentleman and you have no right to bring disgrace upon your father's name you ought not to gamble and if you do gamble you have no right to surrender your honor in payment of your losses i promise you as you ask me to do that i will not tell what you have done and you know i never break a promise under any circumstances whatever but in promising this i place my own reputation in your keeping depending upon you in the event of necessity to frankly acknowledge your fault so that i may not appear to have run away from a debt which in fact i have paid when i read that letter continued billy i began to see daylight bob had given his word of honor to ewing not to expose him 
Ewing had died before he could make the money matter good, and Bob, like the great, big, honorable, dear old fellow that he is, allowed himself to go to jail and bear the reputation of an absconding debtor, rather than break his promise to the dead boy. He paid the money again, too. I suspected, of course, that Foggy and Charlie Harrison were mixed up in the matter some way, particularly as the very last visit Ewing ever made to the courthouse was made on the day that Bob went away. I went to Philadelphia, and there found the cancelled draft, drawn in favor of David Currier, endorsed to Robert Pagebrook, and by him endorsed to Edwin Pagebrook. Then followed, as you know, an endorsement to James M. Raves, signed E. Pagebrook. That, of course, was written by Ewing, who at the suggestion of these two men made the draft over to them, or to one of them, by signing his own name, which happened, when written with the initial only, to be the same as his father's. Foggy then endorsed it to Harrison, and he, being respectable, had no difficulty in getting Rosenwater to cash it for him. It never entered Rosenwater's head, of course, to question any of the signatures back of Harrison's. Now my theory is that this draft did not cover Ewing's losses by $225, and so the two thrifty gentlemen made the boy execute the note that Harrison holds for that amount, dating it ahead and making it for borrowed money. "'You're right, Barksdale, without a doubt,' said the Commonwealth's attorney. "'But how are we going to make a jury see it? "'There's plenty of evidence to found an indictment on, "'but I'm afraid there ain't enough to secure a conviction.' "'That's true,' said Billy. "'But we must do our very best. "'If we can't convict both, we may one.' and even if we fail altogether in the prosecution, we will at least expose the rascals, and this county will be too hot for them afterwards. Foggy is always shaky in the knees, and if we give him half a chance, we'll turn state's evidence. Why not sound him on the subject? Foggy needed very little sounding indeed. At the first intimation that there might be hope for him, if he would tell what he knew, he volunteered a confession, which bore out Billy's theory to the letter. From his statement, too, it appeared that Harrison was the author of the whole scheme. He had overborne Ewing's scruples, and by dint of threats compelled him to commit a practical forgery by writing his own name in such a way as to make it appear to be his father's. While Foggy was at it, he made a clean breast, telling all about his partnership with Harrison in the gambling operations, and admitting that the note Harrison held was dated ahead and given solely for a gambling debt. The Commonwealth's attorney agreed to enter a nalle prosequi in Foggy's case, and to transfer him at the trial from the prisoner's box to the witness stand. When Billy came out from this conference, 
he found Major Pagebrook awaiting an opportunity to speak to him. The Major, it seems, after going home, had returned to the courthouse. "'Billy,' he said, "'I know now about that letter from Robert to Ewing. Sarah Ann has told me she read it when it came. What is to be done about it?' "'Nothing,' said Billy except that you will of course return robert the extra three hundred dollars he has paid you of course i'll do that but i mean the fact is i don't want that letter to appear on the trial you will have to tell where you got it and it will come out in spite of everything that sarah ann knew of it well cousin edwin what am i to do this has been a wretched business from first to last. Poor Bob has suffered severely for Ewing's fault, and, I must speak plainly, through cuz, through your wife's iniquity. Not only has he had to pay the money twice, he has been sent to jail, and but for a lucky accident, his reputation as an honorable man would have been destroyed forever and that merely to gratify your wife's petty and unreasonable spite against him. It became my duty to unravel this mystery for the sake of freeing Bob from an unjust and undeserved disgrace. In doing that, I have accidentally stumbled upon the discovery of a crime, and even if it were not illegal, I am not the man to compound a felony. For you I am heartily sorry, but your wife is only reaping what she has sown. I would do anything honorable to spare your feelings, Cousin Edwin, but I cannot help giving evidence in this case. I really do not see, however, precisely how Bob's letter can be used as evidence. If it had been sufficient in itself to establish the facts to which it referred, I should have used it to set Bob right, and the thing would have ended there. But Bob's statement was of course an interested one, and I feared that after a time, if not immediately, gossip would seize upon that point and say the whole thing was made up merely to clear Bob. I knew he would never show Ewing's letter to which his was a reply and so I set myself to work hunting up the draft. I don't see how the letter can well come up on the trial, but if it should become necessary for me to tell about it, I must tell all about it, of course. Major Pagebrook walked away, his head bowed as if there were a heavy weight upon his shoulders, and Billy pitied him heartily. This woman who in her groundless malignity had wrought so much wrong and brought so much of sorrow upon the good old man, was his wife, and he could not free himself from the fact or its consequences. He had never willingly done a wrong in his life, and it seemed peculiarly hard that he should now have to suffer so sorely for the sins of the woman whom he called wife. End of chapter 31